Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. Our show. This is our show, yes. Your lovely friends here, welcoming you back for an evening of relaxation and funky frolics, 70s style. Boom, checka, 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 boom, checka, 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 boom, checka, checka, checka. I'm rocking the afro. You're rocking the purple floors, dude. I'm a big fan of that wide lapel polyester <laughs> shirt that you're wearing. And my, that's a big belt buckle. Well, yeah, I saw it lying around my wardrobe. <laughs> thought I'd look pretty jive. Pretty jive? Pretty jive. Is that what you thought you'd look like? I'm pretty jive, What's turkey. happening, jive, turkey? Word on the street is... Is. Is what? I don't know. Tonight we're doing a is we're, We are launching those 70s shows. Six weeks, count them. Six. I don't know why I only held up five fingers then. Six weeks... Of glorious 70s magnificence. The decade of brown. The decade of beige and brown. The decade of Farah. The decade of mood rings. I think this is going to be good. Oh, well, I think it is. I, mean, I could be wrong. I know we've got some great comics lined up. Yeah. And even at six weeks, we've not got everything I wanted to cover. I'm so sad. So sad that, you know, we won't, we won't be doing Deathlock. Mm-hmm. He was on we the list. Just to do he's, a shameless he's on the list, too. yeah. But uh, sadly, he has been whittled away. As 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 have other classic thing, Kirby's return to Marvel. We won't be looking at Devil Dinosaur. <laughs> I am saddened by that. Are you actually? Not really. I didn't think it was very good. But that's just me. I didn't think something was very good that we we're covering today. Oh, how can you say that? Today's is just nothing but quality. From top to bottom. Even you've admitted that one of the comics we're covering today isn't all that great. I don't think we, we disagree about the same one, though. I, I think we'll have to... Which one? Oh, we're not, I'm not shooting me lord now, dude. <laughs> but now I'm interested. Uh, well, you'll have to get there, won't you? Yeah. We have a little bit of preamble. We have emails to discuss. Because we didn't do it last week. Oh, yes, we did do it last week. Just I've missed a week. Before, yeah. Haven't I? I've lost a week. Because I didn't edit last week's show. Hey! Mm-hmm. Week off. So, Kyle Benning emailed in about the Joker finale. Happy Friday. It's Thursday, Kyle. <laughs> just, just pointing that out. I never could get the hang of Thursdays, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, Kyle loved all the jabs at New 52 continuity, or lack thereof. These jokes just seem to write themselves, don't they? He says, I thought we were quite restrained. Oh, yeah, yeah. In our new 52 jokes. If we want to go out, though, we can go out. We though. could, but the whole the whole purpose of Death of the Family was to celebrate a new 52 story, not to bury it. Mm-hmm. We came to praise, not to bury. So I thought we were quite restrained, though, Kyle. But the ones that we did do, I'm glad you found them funny. 
Carl says that I have a lot of issues with New 52, don't we all? However, I have nothing but good things to say about Capullo's artwork and Snyder's writing during the first arc on Batman, together with Night of Owls. Man, did I love that story. That was the best of the New 52 story arcs in that first year of the launch. Some of the other Batman books had some gorgeous art, but were lacking in the story department. But based on Paul Jenkins' essay on his issues with editorial, it sounds like there were way too many editors sticking their fingers into the Batman pie for any writer not named Scott Snyder. So after coming off the great course of Owl's story, I was eagerly awaiting Snyder's take on the Joker, and DC did a great job of hyping it up. Maybe it was because of the incredible expectations I set for Snyder following Court of Owls. Maybe it was the hype. Maybe it was my continuing disdain towards DC. But maybe it was my reading of the story in a month-by-month progression. Maybe it was a combination of all these that left me cold when I got to the end of Death of the Family. However, that being said, I went back and read it before listening to you two tackle this one and was pleasantly surprised by how much better it was the second time round. Reading it all at once and in one setting, with only the Batman issues versus all the other tie-ins, I read much, much better. Like you state, it definitely suffers from the undefined baggage of the five-year timeline, and accepting that... But should we really have to accept this to enjoy a story? I found Death of the Family serves as a great standalone story. The New 52 has had its moments, if you treat each individual story and title as its own little elseworld. It's too bad we have to resort to such a mindset to enjoy some true gems. Um, yes, by and large, you can just take or leave Batman as it is. I mean, one of the advantages of Scott Snyder being the superstar that he's managed to make himself is that DC seem to be leaving him alone, don't they? Yeah. And it's one of those instances where I'm quite glad they're leaving him alone, because Batman and Justice League are pretty much the only DC books I read at the minute, aren't they? Mm. And uh, Batman is pretty... Zero year is pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. I was very... Why are they doing this? Have you read one. the last issue yet? The, war, the most recent one, yeah. The most yeah. recent one we've got. Is that issue 23, 24? 29. 29. I was close. <laughs> Ish. Yes, I have read issue 29. What did, what did you make of that? I greatly enjoyed it. I it was, it wasn't as good as the last um, climax. No, well, is that the end of an act? Yeah. Per so se. the first one was the Red Hood stuff. This was. So the, is issue thirty kicking off another part of Zero Year? Yeah. Right. So this, how long is Zero Year going to run? This is it now. Is it? Because yeah. originally I thought it was only ten issues. No, no, it was going to. It's a year-long story. That's only twelve issues. How many have we had now? I have no idea, but it feels like more than 12. Oh, it's been great. We've, we've it has been great, but it was interrupted by that plug for Eternal. That was, the crap out of That me. was because Capullo needed an art break. Yeah, I don't mind that, but I, I resent paying $3 for an advert for a book I'm not going to buy. I, no, I understand it, because it's Scott Snyder having a, a backdoor pilot for his new Batman series. Hmm, they still didn't like it, though. No, um... But yeah, it's taken us full circle now. So when we read the first issue of Zero Year, yeah. where Gotham was flooded, we've now seen what flooded it. Yes, we have. We have learned that. Right, okay, so are we heading into the final act now? Yeah. Good, good, it's very good though. Mm-hmm. Greatly enjoying it. I won't go as far to say it's my all-time favourite Joker story, like Michael does, but it is an enjoyable, solid and well-paced story, and I'm glad I gave it a reread and a second chance. Snyder's writing is solid, and Capullo's art is fantastic. He adds so much context to the story with his subtle expressions and background details that he slides in there. In the future, will it be mentioned in the same breath as Killing Joke? Maybe. Only time will tell. I think Snyder's been better mm. than Killing Joke. Yeah. I honestly do. But... 
my opinion on that has been well stated before. It's easier <laughs> to come in, kick up all the tables, write a single story and get the hell out of Dodge mm-hmm. than it is to come in and write a consistently good book month in, month out. So as far as I'm concerned, Scott Snyder is better than Killing Joke. Yeah. Obviously, Joe Public won't agree with me. <laughs> Killing Joke will always be one of the top ten graphic novels of all time. But also known as Killing Joke's the only Batman graphic novel that we've ever read. <laughs> now, now, <Insta. laughs> uh, thank you, Kyle. I, I appreciate that uh, immensely. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, glad you enjoyed it. I know we enjoyed Death of the Family. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I, I do agree that it's better the second time round, though. I, I was yes. disappointed with it the first time I read it. My problem with it the second time round is we didn't have that monthly anticipation of us fighting over the boot. But that was a problem as well, because when you got to the ending, we were both disappointed. Orig- on the original reading, I was disappointed with the ending. But when I reread it for the show, it worked much better for me yeah. than it did when I read the it on the monthly The way it was versus. good for the anticipation, but it killed the ending. Mm. Yeah, that's a fair comment. Uh, Chris Franklin, host, co-host, I should say, of Supermates, which is a podcast he does with his wife. It's very good. Go and check it out. Lovely listener. Uh, has emailed in. Title is Big Ben Out of Spidey's Window. First off, he says, there are no bad episodes of Batman the Animated Series. Alright, there are a few clunkers, but my bad Batman the Animated Series episode is better than almost any other show's best. I will say the Underdwellers and I Have Batman in My Basement are two of the weakest. Cindy and I discuss these briefly in episode three of Supermates while discussing two of the best episodes. And yes, this was an unabashed plug. And we don't mind that. Yeah. But I, normally I forget to plug people's shows, <laughs> so I don't mind them plugging. But there you go, Chris. Two plugs for the price of one. Wasn't the Underdwellers one where all the kids are working? Yeah, in isn't yeah. it? All the kids are working in the sewers and he goes undercover and, oh, yeah. and I fell asleep. <laughs> He what? goes undercover as a child. <laughs> now that would be impressive. Matches Malone Jr. <laughs> Chris continues, I love to hear about our domestic superheroes adventures in the UK, especially all new stories. I think it was my early exposure to the Superheroes Monthly, which I've mentioned before, even though those were all reprints with new covers. They were really awesome new covers. Yeah, the UK stuff had some great covers still. I think Marvel should be doing some kind of portfolio, that stuff. Some great stuff, though. This Spidey tale, continues Chris, sounds like a typical mid-80s spider yarn. I could see it running in Peter Parker or maybe early Web of Spider-Man. I remember Mike Collins from DC's short-loved Peter Cannon Thunderbolt series, and I've always been a fan of Kitson ever since that Batgirl special. Loved his JLA Year One and Flash and Green Lantern The Brave and the Bold mini with Mark Wade, Both highly recommended. Yeah, that Brave and the Bold mini is brilliant. Transformers, huh? Never occurred for the Marvel comic, but I love the toys and the tunes. The original animated movie was an epic event of the twilight of my childhood. Till next week, Chris. Well, we hope you liked the Transformers episode. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed doing that one. Our next email is Davis Zamora. Hello, Michael and Andy. Hello, Davis. I'm first. Yes, he's put you first. Are you happy with that? I am, Has that made you content? Are you a happy bunny? I'm a happy meal. Now that you... (laughs) You mermic sleaze. (laughs) You're a happy meal. (laughs) Mermic sleaze. (laughs) It really drives us bats is the subject head, and I should really say that, shouldn't Mm. it? Davis says, uh, you did an exceptional job with Dreadful Birthday Dear Joker. It made the weekly wait for the show that I already love almost unbearable self-aggrandizing though that was. (laughs) I felt the need to read it out, (laughs) mainly because I'd started. <laughs> so I may as well finish, to quote Magnus Magnuson. Part two, I love both the Laughing Fish and Joker's Five-Way Revenge. Who doesn't? Who doesn't love Laughing Fish and Joker's Five-Way Revenge? Apart from you. 
I know. <laughs> I'm only kidding. But I'd say I have more affection for the latter since I found a decent copy of it about two years ago for about $5. The guy selling it knew about its significance, so I didn't feel bad buying it for that price. Part 5, I went into Death of the Family with a lot of hesitance. I hadn't read much of Snyder's Batman and Detective Number 1. I'd be convinced that the Joker was ruined as a character for now. Did anyone like Detective Comics Number 1? I don't think so. Because we pissed all over that as well, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. <laughs> Still, it was a huge Joker story, and I would hate myself if I let it pass me by. I was very pleasantly surprised by it. I would rather this happen pre-New 52, since Capullo draws a fantastic Joker, but Leatherface wasn't a deal-breaker for me. My question this time, what comics have you gone into basically dragging your feet, but ended up loving? That's all for now. Be most excellent, Davis. Wishing he had the skills to podcast about the joke at Davis. Mate, it's really not that difficult. <laughs> a couple of northern chances can do it. Mm-hmm. Anybody can do it. All you need is a microphone and a record button. You, you podcast yourself talking about the Joker, and we will play your trailer. That's An internet connection might help. An well. internet connection might help as well. But it's not a deal breaker. You could send it out like, like they used to do tapes. Yeah, and, and do it underground like that. Underground that would podcasting. Be pretty awesome. What have we covered that we went into kicking and screaming but ended up loving? Well, first off, we've never done anything kicking and screaming. Uh, it's just something we've read. 90% of the stuff we do, we want to do. There's a couple yeah. of times... We've kind of coerced each other into doing something. Oh, there's a f- new film out. Oh, there's a new film out, so we've hauled ourselves out in an effort to get more listeners. Which never worked! <laughs> <laughs> that never, you notice we didn't do a Captain America one. Never worked, that's why. Yeah. So we didn't bother this year. Although, we may do a Captain America episode in the future. So there's nothing that we've done that we had to be kicking and screaming about. I was not overly enamoured with your Frank Quitley choice, initially. Right. For, um... What did we do? Creator Heroes, we called it? Creator Month. Spotlight On. Spotlight On, that was it. Thank you very much. And ended up really enjoying the first issue that he did. The one from Dark Horse Comics Presents. Right, yeah. Ended up really liking that. It almost changed my opinion on him as an artist. Almost. Oh, but it's... Kind of. Well, I've kind of If I'd have done that one last, you'd have really liked it. Because it was first. Well, I have mellowed over the past couple of years, haven't I? Yeah. I've chilled out quite a bit. The beatings have stopped. The beatings have stopped, yes. Whenever you (laughs) rant about Grant Morrison and I keep... Beating you. <laughs> That's gonna change stuff. That's the only one of mine that comes to mind that I was pleasantly surprised by. You've never picked anything that I've thought, oh god, I really don't want to read this. Other than the Frank Quirtley stuff. Because right. even Grant Morrison, when I was in my I hate him phase, I'm man, I'm past that now, <laughs> aren't I? I've mellowed. Yeah. Again. I would rather he be the best Grant Morrison he can be than just try and be hack writer. Because I can just take or leave it. It's mm. just that's just thing. That's the only thing I can think of that when you pick Frank quickly, I thought, for God's sake, really? <laughs> and I ended up reading them all, and, and actually, this wasn't too bad. Yeah. And like I said, the Dark Horse Comics Presents one I really enjoyed. Anything from you? Oh, I'm not sure. Anything know. that I forced you to read? I don't know where the list starts. <laughs> <laughs> and you've ended up going, actually, this, this wasn't bad. Oh, I'm not sure. We've been doing this for three over three years. God, we've been doing it longer. You were 15 when we started. That's a lot of episodes. That's I've been an driving, awful lot of episodes. How many episodes have we done? 170 something. Oh, we're coming up to our 200th episode. Well, coming up, you know, rather loose definition of coming up. 170 something, still 30, 25, 30 episodes away. I guess, unless you get your maths wrong again. That has happened <laughs> in the past. Uh, I don't, I don't, uh, do you not get anything? Secret no. Wars? I can't, oh, yes. Conan? Secret Wars. 
No, I, I was alright with Conan. Secret I thoroughly Wars. enjoyed Conan. Secret Wars. Was Secret Wars your your backbreaker? Was it? It, it probably was. Yeah. <laughs> I knew there was something I didn't like, and I yes. was trying hard to forget it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Clone Saga is going to be the next one. Yeah, but we're covering the original Clone Saga. We're Dario. not covering the nineties Clone. The one saga. that you're reading, and you'll finish it and go, "That wasn't all that bad." We should cover that on a show. I think the Clone Saga will be a little bit too big. Here, Michael, here's your punishment for making me read all the Animal Man and Swamp things. Read all of Clone Saga. The nineties Clone Saga isn't as awful as everyone says it is. That's three all nighters in a row. Let's be honest; it couldn't be as awful as everyone says it is, <laughs> could it? No, it's worse. Could be. It's not at all. Uh, we have an email from Thomas Oswald that says, Cool show as always, guys. Thomas's was huge! Which I believe is, is what she said. It's huge! <laughs> huge! I'm sorry for that horrible accent, uh, it's a deal breaker for me. <laughs> that was me, just being me. I wasn't even attempting an accent. Thomas's email was huge, so I'm just going to do the highlights. It was good though, I enjoyed reading it. Hello, Andrew and Michael, see I'm first. <laughs> This is Zeb Oswald. I like y'all's podcast. You always put together great shows. The UK Spider-Man stuff was pretty cool. I can understand how you feel on someone getting accents wrong. I'm from Louisiana and I get that and I get that crap that is Gambit. I lived in New Orleans. No one talks like him. It's annoying. Does no one talk like the Raging Cajun? No one apparently talks like the Raging Cajun. Well, and and Zeb went into some detail about different accents. Uh, I gave up on Spider-Man, he continued later on, though, after he became a low-budget version of Ghost Rider. I will read Doc Ock as Spider, but not Peter Parker. In my personal continuity, Peter Parker is married to MJ and raising Mayday Parker and his son, and working as a CSI with a bum leg. The city is safe, and his daughter is protecting it as he helps by being a scientist for the NYPD so he doesn't need a mask anymore the way the marriage was ended was are you kidding me but hey it's their character and they can publish it as they like I'll go and read my Spider Girl trade paperbacks and some Miles Morales I seem to be one of the few fans that likes Ultimate Spider-Man I've got to be honest never read any Ultimate Spider-Man since Miles Morales took off we stopped reading it when they killed him off in Ultimatum well, I stopped reading it before that, no, and I went back... Because that was the last issue you got. Yeah, I went back and read Ultimatum. Right. And I've got to be honest, the issue where Aunt May reacts to it was, was, you know, quite tearful. No, that was the death of Peter Parker. Was it? Yeah. Am I getting confused? Yeah. See, that's the th- I've read Ultimate Spider-Man through Bagley leaving, and then I've read it sporadically after that. Because what happened was, we bought it until they ended it with the Ultimatum issues. That was the flood. Right. And he drowned. So Ultimatum wasn't the death of Peter Parker. But then, turns out, in that last panel, you know, was supposed to kill him off, his eyes open and he's alright again. Right. So they kicked off the story with that trade paperback we have there, which none of us have read. Oh, yeah. And that leads into the death of Peter Parker. Right. And that was the one that... And that I've never read, apart from the issue where he actually yeah. passed away. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I kind of lost interest in it, to be honest with you. Uh, Zeb continues I jumped off the regular Spider-Man comics cold turkey not looking back still if the red eye guy from the comics in the UK version came back with Assassin 8 and glowy eye guy was Mr. Sinister and this was Spider-Girl I'd sure as read it maybe I could be written and drawn by Alan Davis that'd be quite cool Alan Davis joins Assassin 8 it might be fun if Marvel had Captain Britain fights Assassin 8 maybe the red eye dude was an agent of Sat Year 9 I don't know who that is that could work assassinate working for Sat Year 9 so she could set up something where Spider-Man was to fight Captain Britain and Sat Year 9 will use assassinate as part of the new British Frightful 4 I like the idea of a British Frightful 4 up oh, your apples and purse mate we're <laughs> ready to rob your banks oh blimey governor 
Oh, you're right, we're going to rob this bank, bloody hell, and then we're going to have some a bloody party. Yeah, but then you've got to have somebody call somebody an old fruit. E bloody heck, I'm John Constantine. What the bloody hell are you doing? <laughs> mate. <laughs> got to throw a mate in there if it's John Constantine. Yeah. He's got to say all the time. Yeah. Can't wait for the next one from Zeb Oswald. Well, you're very welcome, Zeb. Thank you for emailing in. Our next email is Luke Giaconetti. Is this the MPLA? Is this the UDA? Is this the IRA? Hi there, this was Spider-Man in the UK! I do like them. <laughs> Every week I say that. Luke has emailed in, Assassins 9 and 10. That would be me and you. Am I 10? Yeah, you're the more, more up-to-date version. Hey guys, just wanted to drop you a quick email saying that I really appreciated and enjoyed your coverage of Spider-Man's little soiree to the UK. The little exposure I have to British comics is limited to some 2000 AD, Simon Furman's Transformers work, timely, some Alan Davis' Captain Britain, and a handful of war comics, so I always enjoy hearing about the superhero books. This story doesn't sound all that impressive, but I can imagine how cool it would be to readers at the time to see the hero in the neck of the woods. Growing up in New York, I got this all the time with Marvel Comics. Heck, the X-Men were based in Westchester County, which is right near where I grew up. Plus, exclusive stuff like this is always a treat just from a novelty standpoint. Not unlike the aforementioned UK Transformers stuff, all of which became much more important to the overall story of the series when Furman took over the main book. I have fun imagining young Andy poring over the comics and admiring his handiwork with the free sticker on his window. <laughs> I was on my window for ages. Apparently a different version of Assassin 8 showed up in the later Panini Marvel Heroes comic, looking very similar to the original. Evidently, this version was turned into a cyborg by the Secret Empire, a solution, a solution sorry, to the mystery that works for me. You can find more info on marvelviewandapp.com Appendix 6 Assassin 8. Oh, cool. Thanks, fellas. Look forward to hearing the Transformers stuff you cover, Luke. Well, thank you very much, Luke. Glad you enjoyed it. The Spider-Man UK stuff seems to have gone down quite well. I was always a bit concerned about that because you're covering something that very, very few people will actually have read. Now, you know... Maybe that's why more people will listen. Maybe that's possible, yeah. Because, as I said, that's never been reprinted anywhere. So yeah. there's a, there's a Spider-Man story there that a huge portion of Spider-Man's fan base have never read. So, yeah, that, that may have been a part of it. But I enjoyed doing that. Last one for tonight. And it is from our good chum... Michael Bailey. Hello, Michael. Can I make the in-the-house gag again? And you can Michael say, might be in the no, house. This house, and, you know. Insert gag here. <laughs> Writes itself, doesn't it? At this point. Not when you have to explain it like that. Michael has emailed about Transformers. Hey, mates, part of me wants to write in and complain about Michael basically insulting one of the seminal moments of my childhood. Read the supposedly horrible, but is in fact quite awesome... The Touch by Stan Bush, playing while Optimus and Megatron fight to the death, but frankly it doesn't really matter. He wasn't ten years old when that movie came out, and he didn't grow up in the 80s. Expecting him to like, or at the very least appreciate, that would be like me trying to understand anything that happens in pop culture when he was ten. I can't fault him for doing something that I do on a frequent basis. I mean, it stung a bit, but I'm a grown man, such things should roll off my back. Did you really dislike The Touch? I felt really bad after I said, I read this, this email and I felt so bad. You know, you know what, Michael? Just don't say anything about your opinions ever again. I'm sure that's not what he meant. Yeah. But a couple of people did email in saying, that's an awesome song! So it wasn't just Michael. So, were we so listening you, to the same You urinated over a lot of people's childhood memories, though. <laughs> I hope you're proud of yourself. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> 
Uh, Mike continues, I will point out, however, that while the score to Transformers the movie was done by Vince DiCola, the touch was all Stan Bush. It was a song he had brought to the table when the Scotty brothers were chosen to put together the official soundtrack. This is why the movie has a Weird Al song, as he was with Scotty brothers at the time. In fact, if you listen to Durr and Hearts on Fire from Rocky IV back to back, you begin to see they're basically the same song. Just thought you might like to know that, like you might be. I'm tempted to go and listen to that Transformers soundtrack now. Because <laughs> I'm a sucker for that Rocky IV soundtrack. I'm tempted to watch the film again. <laughs> they grounded you down, haven't they? <laughs> oh. I, I enjoyed it when I watched it. It's just I wish they had a different soundtrack. If I'd have known that you had that film before we recorded the episode, I would have watched it, because such is my dedication mm-hmm. to the show. It cost like three quid from a HMV bargain bin. Yeah, you, you did say that it didn't cost much. Anyway, we'll, we'll call it a day, though, with emails. I think we've gone on for quite long enough, just looking at the time. And we'll plug a show round about here, and it'll be for a fantastic show, I have no doubt. Mm-hmm. And we'll be right back as we get our funk on with the 70s <laughs> jive talking. Watch your talking jive turkey. I don't know any other 70s slang. <laughs> And I watch a lot of Starsky and Hutch. You think I'd know more than that, wouldn't you? We need our own little. <laughs> we do. Little... <laughs> he was a Snoop Dogg. What was he called? Huggy Bear, dude. <laughs> Huggy Bear. Snoop Dogg played him in the film. Right. That terrible abortion of a film. Snoop Bear. Huggy Dog. <laughs> right. We'll be right back. This is getting silly. <laughs> Coming soon on Two True Freaks. Beware the Beast Man. A month-long celebration. For he is the devil's pawn. Of one of the greatest science fiction series. Alone among God's primates. Of all time. He kills for sport, or lust, or greed. Covering all the films. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. All the comic books. Shun him. The toys. Drive him back into his jungle lair. The entire phenomenon that was. For he is the harbinger of death. The Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes, a month long event, coming soon, only at twotruefreaks.com. The 1970s. As described by Dr. David Banner in the TV pilot movie for The Incredible Hulk, was the decade of horoscopes, UFOs, and Farrah Fawcett. To be fair, there was a little more to it than that, and an argument can be made. It's the single most popular decade in terms of pop culture influence and longevity. Despite the general disdain of the medium by the world at large, the mainstream love affair with superheroes that continues to this day began in the 1970s, with successful television shows such as The Six Million Dollar Man, The Incredible Hulk, The Bionic Woman and Wonder Woman. On the big screen, the phenomenal success of Superman the movie proved comics could be translated to more lucrative mediums, and yet despite featuring some of the most challenging, thought-provoking and groundbreaking comics ever to be produced, in the 1970s, sales were in the toilet. As with our Silver Age series, we'll be mainly looking at Marvel and DC comics of the era, again wondering if these stories and comics hold up today, and what, if anything, their influence has been. It seems to me that the Bronze Age doesn't get as much flack for silliness as the Silver Age does, and I know I specifically want to examine if the era's reputation for maturity holds up. The 70s are largely referred to as the Bronze Age of comics, so named to reflect the more mature storytelling of the era, according to a popular online encyclopedia site. 
It's said to run from the early 1970s to the mid-1990s, but, as we mentioned in the Silver Age shows we did, no consensus has ever been reached on a specific date. Personally, I tend to think that the publication of Detective Comics issue 395, covered it in January 1970, signifies the beginning of the Bronze Age. Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams taking over the Batman and returning him to his Dark Knight detective phase would seem to me to be a good place for the era to begin, and Secret of the Waiting Graves, the story in that issue, also features a strong supernatural element that would previously have been verboten thanks to the comics code. Do you agree with that? Yeah. No, the first Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams issue could be the beginning of the Bronze Age? I'll take your word for it. Will you really? Uh, will, yeah. okay. Well, we're going to postulate another one later on in the show. Okay. I'm good at this teasing, <laughs> I think. It was also an era in which no concept was considered too outlandish if it was thought that it could turn a profit. Then current trends from the women's movements to black exploitation movies, kung fu to social relevance, were all considered fur game for stories, as the Comics Code Authority relaxed its guidelines allowing for more supernatural elements to return, a move which benefited Batman stories and horror tales. Comics experimented with other formats and genres in an effort to increase its reader base, and in terms of diversity there may be more choices available to readers than pretty much any decade before or since. Whilst the decade saw a steep decline in Western and Romance comics, the biggest hits of the decade included Tomb of Dracula, Master of Kung Fu, and Conan the Barbarian, showing an increased interest in non-superhero titles. Marvel scored big with its acquisition of the license for hit movie Star Wars, and DC made history when they had Superman fight both Muhammad Ali and Spider-Man. DC also scored a massive coup when Jack Kirby, for so long the quintessential Marvel Comics creator, jumped ship to produce comics exclusively for the company. Characters such as Iron Fist, Luke Cage, Blade, Jonah Hex, Swamp Thing, Shang-Chi, The Punisher, Wolverine and Howard the Duck made their first appearances, and it was the beginning of the superstar creator as writers and artists such as Chris Claremont, Steve Englehart, Steve Gerber, Don McGregor, Jim Starlin, John Byrne, Frank Miller, George Perez, Barry Windsor-Smith, Walt Simonson and Marshall Rogers all started to make their names. To start with, though, one of the most influential comics of the decade, and arguably of all time. This comic is single-handedly responsible for the X-Men behemoth that continues to this day, and yet it was born from the ashes of failure. The X-Men comic had debuted in the summer of 1963, and had hoped to capitalise on the success of the Fantastic Four, in the same way Daredevil had hoped to capitalise on the success of Spider-Man. For some reason, this Stan Lee, Jack Kirby creation didn't click as well as the more successful FF, and within 12 issues, Kirby had jumped ship. Lee followed him with issue 20. The title limped on with Roy Thomas doing his best, but it was only some excellent art by Neil Adams that distinguished the comic from others, and it rarely reached the heights, artistically or commercially, of other Marvel books of the time. With issue 66, cover dated March 1970, the book was effectively cancelled, but surprisingly resurrected eight months later when issue 67, cover dated December 1970, appeared on the stands, but now as a reprint title. It slogged along, the reprints presumably making it more financially viable, until issue 93 in April 1975, when, as if out of nowhere, a new team was introduced. Readers would be forgiven their confusion. The team were relaunched in spectacular fashion, but not in the pages of X-Men, rather in a different magazine. 
Giant Size X-Men number 1, cover dated May 1975. Roy Thomas had long wanted to bring back Marvel's mutant super team, and Marvel's then-president, Al Landau, provided the means. Landau had been in charge of repackaging Marvel's strips for overseas markets, and realised they needed more diversity if they were to appeal to European and Asian markets. Thomas saw this as a way of replacing the old X-Men characters with a new team, comprised of a cast of different ethnicities. Thomas brainstormed with Dave Cockrum and Mike Friedrich, and they spitballed ideas, but the project was put on the back burner when Thomas left Marvel. By the time the book was on the schedule, Len Wein had been assigned as writer, and he added Wolverine to the mix to appeal to the Canadian market, and changed some of the characters' names. Second Genesis was written by Len Wein, with art by Dave Cockrum. It was lettered by John Costanza and coloured by Glynis Wein. No nepotism at all in Marvel at those times. It has been reprinted tons of times, but the one we're reading is in the Marvel's... What's that to call this? Marvel First, the 1970s, Volume 2. Cover is by Gil Kane and Dave Cockrum and shows the new X-Men, Nightcrawler, Sunfire, Colossus, Storm and Wolverine, alongside older member Cyclops, bursting out of a poster depicting the old X-Men, Cyclops, Beast, Iceman, Angel and Marvel Girl. What do you think of that iconic, seminal cover that has been much parodied over the years? Well, it's... it's. I can I, tell you're not going to like it. It's iconic, but it's a poster cover which we don't like. Poster covers do have their place. Yeah, and this kind of works into the poster cover thing with a poster. Yes, and they are touring through the poster of the original X-Men. Why the original X-Men are reacting on a poster as if somebody has just burst through their chest like an alien. I don't know, but the Beast and Marvel Girl are both going, Ah! My guts are everywhere! <laughs> because Colossus has just burst from my chest. Ah! I'm like John Hurt! <laughs> ah! That's what it's like, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's not very good. Do you not like it? Uh, I'm not... I, I don't have an opinion on it because it has become iconic, but I don't like it, but I can see why it's become iconic. Um, I... Don't dislike it. It doesn't wow me. Yeah. But, like you say, it is It is one of those comics covers that, as comics fans, you're just so familiar with. Yeah. Even if you're not familiar with the original, you've seen that parodied. Yeah. Be it on Marvel Zombies, or a giant size X-Men of a more recent vintage, or a variant cover for something, whatever. You've seen that cover parodied numerous times. Mm. So even if you've never seen the original, you are aware of it. I think it's alright, it does the job. It, it does what it's, it sets out to do. It's new X-Men bursting forth from the ashes of the old. Yeah. You know. Professor Xavier is touring the world, recruiting new mutants to his cause. In Germany, he prevents Kurt Wagner from being lynched by an angry mob due to his unconventional appearance of a blue skin, fangs and satanic tail. In Canada, he encourages the man called Wolverine to resign his commission from the Canadian military and join him. And Banshee, an Irish man in Tennessee, needs little provocation to re-enlist with Xavier. Wherever he goes, be it Africa to recruit a self-appointed goddess named Storm, Japan to bring Sunfire to the Western world, Siberia for the man known as Peter Rasputin, or the Arizona Plains for proud member of the Apache John Proudstar, they are all convinced to join Xavier in his vision of a better world for mutants. Kind. 
And so it is that in Westchester, New York, at Professor X's school for gifted youngsters, this disparate group of individuals are gathered together and introduced to Cyclops, the last remaining member of a super team of mutants known as the X-Men. The other members of the team have all disappeared on a far-off island called Krakoa, where they had been searching for a newly minted mutant. Cyclops says he found himself back at the school with no memory of what happened or how his power to shoot optic blasts from his eyes had been increased so dramatically. These new X-Men are to journey to Krakoa to locate the original team. Arriving back at the island, teams are dispatched and they approach a temple that has appeared from nowhere, each from different directions. Many obstacles are thrown at them, but rough and unprepared as these mutants are, they manage to break ground and reach the massive doors. Breaking in, they see the XX-Men strung up, apparently being used as sustenance. They are cut loose, but the angel reveals that the entire island is the mutant they were searching for, and it requires more food. It let Cyclops go in the hope it would bring more people back for it to feed upon. Not wanting to be food, these new X-Men join forces with the old and fight, but Krakoa is a living island and not easily defeated. Professor X sends a mind probe, not the mind probe, suggesting a plan that seems to involve Storm shooting lightning into Lorna Dane, reigniting her magnetic powers, and enabling her to propel her magnetic energies down into the Earth's core, which apparently causes the physical manifestation of Krakoa to melt, because Lorna has severed the lines of magnetic force, causing gravity to cease to exist on the island. No, I didn't understand it either. Whatever they did, the island is rent asunder, causing the plane the X-Men arrived in to disappear into the maelstrom. The X-Men improvise a small boat as the island, free of its ties to Mother Earth, is shot up into space. Really. Nature abhors a vacuum, so the sea whirls and coruscates as it attempts to fill the suddenly empty space where Krakoa used to be, and Iceman throws an ice dome around them and their makeshift boat, saving their lives. Fortunately, the Stratojet wasn't completely destroyed by the lack of gravity, or the island shooting off into space, or the incredible whirlpool, and the X-Men fly back to New York wondering what they are going to do with 13 team members. And that was the plot of Second Genesis. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. Uh, the splash page acts as another poster, introducing the new team from the ashes of the old. Interestingly, the beast appears here, but not in the story itself. Well, it's interesting to me, anyway. And Len Wein and Dave Crockram are clearly credited as co-creators. Given that four of these seven new X-Men have appeared in the movies, I do wonder if either of them saw any money. Cochrane does a much better job with the new team than the old. The Beast looks like he's been caught doing something he shouldn't. <laughs> and Iceman looks like Doc Savage. What do you think of that splash page? I'd say it's better than the cover. Do you like that better than the cover? Yeah. All right. I just don't like Wolverine's yellow and blue outfit. I do. Do you? See, yeah. I, I got into the X-Men when he was in the brown. Yeah. So I've never got into the yellow and blue. I just... It just doesn't do anything for me. I first knew him in leather suits, so... Seeing him in, in blue and yellow is kind of cool. What, in the film or in Morrison's X-Men? Right? In the film. Right. Yeah, like 1999. Which pretty much out. was Morrison's X-Men. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's interesting to look back on the opening of this comic now and see that it was clearly Nightcrawler 
that Marvel were grooming for superstardom. He gets the biggest and best introduction and is portrayed as a very sympathetic character. With the exception of Colossus, all the others are rather arrogant and unlikable in their introductions. Nightcrawler is being persecuted for his looks and really just wants to fit in. That's the X-Men mission statement right there, the tackling of blind prejudice and messages of acceptance. I really like the Nightcrawler stuff. That being said, that we did like the introduction of Nightcrawler. The view of Germany depicted here is more akin to the 19th century than the 20th, isn't it? (laughs) it's the monster! All the locals have flaming torches and crosses. (laughs) And pitchforks. No, I did not spot a pitchfork, (laughs) did you? No. I did not see a pitchfork. They missed a trick, though. On the cliché list that they were ticking off, (laughs) they missed off a pitchfork. Quite upset about that, to be honest with you. Over in Canada, the military just allow Professor X to see Wolverine. Yeah, and then he he sits there, which I found confusing. He sits there for the entire conversation. He doesn't interrupt or anything. And then Wolverine says, yeah, I'll go with you. And then he uh, butts in with his problem. Yeah, the, the the Canadian military guy. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a bit strange. Xavier's school is ostensibly A for kids. Yeah. It being a school and all. And B, isn't it a secret... Yeah. That it's a school for mutants, really. Well, maybe the deal is the the chief guy keeps quiet about the school for mutants and he keeps quiet about those missing uh, documents that got leaked over the internet. (laughs) Yeah, but like you said, this doesn't make any sense, does it? He lets Professor X talk to Wolverine. He doesn't interrupt him. He lets him make his offer. And then he's shocked when Wolverine says yes. Yeah. It's like, well, what did did you think he was going to do? If you've just given the opportunity to just walk away. And hmm. um, obviously it's setting up Wolverine's shady past for future issues, but yes. But ticking off another cliche on the cliche list, uh, we now get cliched portrayal of blustering military man. Yeah. Isn't he? He's General Ross again, isn't he? Mm. It's exactly what he is. Impotent and doesn't do anything. Quite useless. Moving on to the next cliche on the list Banshee is Irish. I don't think Banshee was a... a did, well, he... All right, first, I say that back. The is first Bigora. thing he says is Bigora. <laughs> I take it back that I didn't think Banshee was a cliche. His opening line is Bagora, <laughs> And it's like, would you want to hang a thing on him saying, I'm Irish? <laughs> and he, he was green as well, so... yeah. Uh, of course he does, yes. But um, he's in Tennessee watching the Grand Old Opry, which is apparently was a live radio show dedicated to country music. I did not know that. I had to look that up. Cause I was... He's watching a radio show. Yeah, well, they used to tape it in front of a live studio oh, audience, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is always better than taping it in front of a dead studio audience, <laughs> is what I find. This smells kind of off-putting. It, it is. In contrast to Nightcrawler's four-page intro, Banshee gets two panels. Yeah. Professor X shows up and says, uh, do you want to come with me, Banshee? And Banshee says, oh, Begora, hey, I'll do that. Oh, or Bono, you too. <laughs> That's totally what he says, isn't it? Definitely. Because, like, we're, we're so portraying him as Irish cliche stereotype. Yep. Tick! <laughs> Another one done on the list. Uh, taking the award for the most arrogant of the new characters, a hotly contested award in this issue, is Storm, who genuinely seems to believe that she is a goddess and the people that she protects are her children. Setting aside this huge example of hubris, Professor X knocks her off her perch, tells her to accept reality and come with him. So basically, Charlie just destroys a civilization. 
Yeah. Rightly or wrongly, these people have come to depend on Storm, and in four panels, Charlie ruins it. He's like Captain Kirk in the Prime <laughs> Directive, isn't he? I actually found the, her backstory more interesting than most of the other parts of the story. What, that she'd been led to believe she was a god yeah. and not a mutant? It's it's much better than, oh, I'm bored of sitting around here in my house, so maybe I'll become Sunfire again. <laughs> or, hey, this, this radio shows uh, I might be boring, so I might just go around and... <laughs> And fight some people with my singing voice. Hey! It's the Welsh that I've got singing voices, dude. No, he screams. I know he does. He has his banshee wail, doesn't he? Yeah, alright, fair enough. That's, that's, yeah. I mean, uh, I didn't have a problem with her introduction per se, but I do, I did think that she was portrayed as very standoffish, which maybe you would be if you thought you were a god. Mm. I don't know. I did think it was interesting as well for all the X-Men's preaching of equality. I noticed only the new female character, and a very attractive one, is introduced topless. Yeah. All of the men keep the tops on. Well, except for... Colossus has a wife beater on. I guess. But it's still a top, isn't it? (laughs) Half a one. Yeah, it's half a top. Half a top, half a top, half a top onwards. So, Sunfire, like Banshee, gets a two-panel introduction. I thought that the panel layouts were weird in this. Why? Why did, did you not you know? Right, okay. I'm um, used to reading 70s comics, I didn't know. So Storm's introduction ends with three panels on the top of a new page. Yeah. And then you have two panels for Sunfire, and then Colossus's introduction is two panels at the end of that page, and then carries over onto the next page. I don't think there's anything particularly unusual about that. Are you used to things taking full pages? No, I, I, I'm used to things like one page will lead into the next, so a character's right. introduction will start on their own page. Right. But here you've got Which one Which we mentioned ending. in Rockwell. Yeah. But here you've got one opening ending, another opening altogether, and then another opening starting on the same page. Oh, okay. No, so to me, that's, that's just how comics were then. They just got on with it quickly. Crammed everything. Yeah, they yeah. crammed everything in and, and got on with the story. Uh, in Russia, Peter Rasputin is a simple farmer. Maybe Marvel's Superman analogue. Yeah. He's a pure, wholesome farmer boy, mm. is what he is. Anyway, he changes to Colossus, runs to save his sister from the path of a runaway tractor. And then the caption tells us he has no time to move her out of the way, and so he destroys the tractor. There were two problems with this bit. Did you notice I this? had one problem with it. Alright, well my two problems are, the captions tell us that these poor farm folk can barely afford another tractor. So well done, Peter. <laughs> You've just bankrupted your family for the month. <laughs> Secondly, he's off, so it doesn't matter. Him. Yeah, he's not bothered, is he? He gets to go and live with Professor X in his swanky mansion yeah. with uh, Lex Luthor and Arrow. <laughs> then they also say in the captions that when he grabs the girl, he has no time to move out of the way, which the art completely fails to get across. Yeah, in the art, he picks the girl up and then he just stops so her. The distance in between, and he, yeah. he stops her and pulls his arm back to punch the tractor. Yeah. There's no way in hell Vats did not have time to get out of the way. That's I'm now showing off. Mm. What was your problem with it? Um, how the tractor that, it, you know, it, it, could, it could be moving quite fast. It's moving reasonably fast, right? It explodes. When he punches it? Yeah. Well, it doesn't crash or dent, it you've explodes. You've watched 70s television. When a car <laughs> goes over a cliff, it, ex- it will explode. That's a car going over a cliff, not a tractor crashing it's into a person. It's the same principle. There is gasoline in that tractor's <laughs> And tank. gasoline is explosive. We are all driving around on massive bombs. 
any, television any, would not lie to any me. slight impact. Yeah. So, so is that boom. What, yeah. This is obviously true. When you get rid of cars, not the speed bumps. Yeah. Or is a wacky idea. Maybe we're not driving <laughs> around on giant bombs. <laughs> that, yeah. Maybe it wouldn't blow up if he punched it. It, it, it. They still blow up when you shoot them, of course. Oh, of course. And if they go off a cliff, they will blow up for no reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is standard operating procedure, obviously. Like Germany, Russia is depicted as a charming place, yeah. full of salt-of-the-earth types. Do you think he's going out of his way to overcompensate here? <laughs> Maybe. The, the Russians are lovely people, the really. Russians are nice, honest. Yeah, honest. They're really nice people. All that never-trust-the-red stuff we printed a while back, we were wrong. Yeah, we were wrong. <laughs> John Proudstar gets the runner-up award in the most arrogant new character category. With Storm, at least we can assume that Professor X deflated her a little, but Proudstar is thoroughly unlikable from the get-go. I get that Ween was probably trying to make a comment on the plight of the Apache, but Proudstar's just typical angry young man. And just not an appealing character. Although, none of them are really likeable, are they? With the possible exception of Banshee. Yeah. Banshee comes across as a pretty decent bloke, doesn't he? Nightcrawler's alright. Nightcrawler's alright, but a bit angsty. But he's a Marvel character. Yeah. So. But none, none of the other new guys come across as in any way likeable. No, well I like Professor Xavier in that last page where he just insults... Uh, Patchy to get him to join the team. Yeah, he says, oh, I've heard that you're a frightened child. <laughs> and uh, instead of turning around and punching him, yeah. he goes with him. I did like that Professor X made all the costumes and invented the co-names. So I have this vision of uh, getting John Proudstar to stand still long enough to take <laughs> his inside leg measurement. Well, the, the costumes are made of unstable... Uh, they are. Puzzles, which I find yeah. really cool, because I like how they mention Reed Richards, because it's in the same universe, but... It's a different title and he's not. But Reed Richards discovered unstable molecules. Yeah, he didn't I, invent them. No, I like that. But I like yeah. it being the same it is, Yeah, it's a nice continuity thing that. Uh, I just love the idea of him measuring everyone up. I, what I find interesting is Colossus's costume. I mean, the other ones are different as well, but Colossus's costume is different. He's wearing pants. Doesn't he always wear pants? No. He just has his boots. Does he? Shorts or something. Yeah. Alright, oh, okay. I always remember him wearing trousers. I like, to think wearing, I like to think he's wearing jeans. <laughs> <laughs> he's just wearing jeans under his boots. Yeah, he's got that ridiculous costume that Professor X has made him, but under he's just wearing a pair of Levi's. How does it stick to him if it's the little tiny bit at the front? I'd, I'd, I would imagine that he's wearing Superman's pants, isn't he? Well, no, the Complete with the red brief. On his top, his chest. It's I'd, just a little bit, though. The rest of it's all skin. Well, that's, that's not. Look, there's a polar neck. Yeah. So that's actually a top. The red bit, because look at the sides. Oh, right, you mean he's exposing his sides. Yeah, and his, how does, his how does the middle bit stick to him? I don't know, I didn't design it. It's unstable molecules. <laughs> Isn't that the catch-all explanation for everything? Because he got them from Krypton. Because it's from Krypton, <laughs> yes. Which is an excellent explanation for anything. I liked that Professor X quickly and telepathically imbu- imbued all these people with a knowledge of the English language. Because retroactively it meant that all the other scenes took place in their native tongues, which I quite like. Yeah. They weren't just speaking English in Russia mm. and Germany. And Professor X was communicating telepathically. Or, I prefer to think Professor X is multilingual. Fair enough. Because that would fit in with his citizen of the world mentality, wouldn't it? Yeah. His, his outlook on life. Uh, in- another introductory splash page which kicks off chapter two. The first time we see the new crew in their natty costumes. Banshee and Sunfire... Up in the back there seems to be having a fun conversation. Banshee's holding his arms apart like this, like he's saying, it was this big! 
I quite found it. And there's, there's some character beats there. Wolverine stood at the back on his own. Oh, Sunfire's saying we would have won the war if they didn't drop the bomb of us. And Banshee's going, get, dude, we didn't get involved. I don't care. <laughs> uh, Professor X must have kept Cyclops hidden all the time the new team arrived and would be measured up for their costume. <laughs> all so he could do this dramatic entrance where he walks through both doors and pushes them both open. Scott, you're going to come out? No, I'm going to be badass. <laughs> I'm going to come out through both doors <laughs> like I'm Patrick McGowan resigning. They, they seem to both be in on it as well because his dialogue, the man called Cyclops. They, they've staged this little entrance. Yes. Oh, God, it's melodramatic as hell as <laughs> oh, this yeah. comic. It really is very, very dramatic in the way things happen. I, for one, am losing patience! <laughs> when you're friendly on the other page, what happened, dude? No, no, none of them are friendly. They're all assholes. <laughs> the Beast is explained away in one panel. But to be fair, the original X-Men aren't really given a lot of page time in this story anyway, are they? So no. the fact that the Beast isn't there doesn't really matter. If these were actors, they would rightly be annoyed by the amount of time they get in lieu of bringing in all the new kids, wouldn't they? Mm. It's like a glorified cameo in many ways and Cyclops is really quite a dick to the beast though <laughs> having graduated the X-Men gene if he's not got time for us now that's his business <laughs> maybe he's just busy yeah. you know has he not allowed a life away from the X-Men Cyclops you've, you've been publishing reprints for years <laughs> he's obviously been doing other stuff that's my thinking. Anyway, the island of Krakoa bears a superficial resemblance to Krakatoa, an island famous for having a huge volcano. As far as I know, Krakatoa did not magically lift itself up from the seabed and fly off into space. No, but I heard it's really painful. <laughs> as far as I know, mm. that, you know, could have happened and nobody told me. The flashback scene explaining the fate of the original X-Men is notable for Cyclops being a real dick to Iceman. <laughs> basically just tell it's him like to shut just a up dick. yeah he basically just tells him to shut up anytime he talks doesn't he <laughs> anytime Iceman opens his mouth shut up yeah <laughs> okay I'm the main character here yeah. I'm the one who gets to stick around with the new X-Men you'll be fired off to the champions uh, there's also a distinct lack of personality yeah. to the old X-Men they're all really really they've really got a rod up their ass these people haven't they yeah it's the soul stiff. Well, Cyclops is anyway. Yeah, but he wasn't originally. It's only new X-Men. And Clermont would mellow him out a lot. He's still block of wood. He is a little bit, yeah. But I always quite like Cy- Cyclops. Cyclops? Krakoa lets Cyclops go to lure more mutants back to Krakoa for the island to eat. But how did he enhance Cyclops' powers? unstable molecules. You reckon? It's from Krypton. It's implied later on in the story that Krakoa sucking the mutant energies removes their powers, right? Yeah. Because Lorna Day needs a jumpstart from Storm. Right. But why do those powers then come back stronger? I didn't get that. Uh, and it wasn't explained anywhere. Maybe it's like... See, you've got a fountain pen that's run out of ink, so you put a new ink thing in and it's boom all over the show. Alright, Okay. I'll go with that. I, I it makes no sense, <laughs> but it makes as much sense as this story does. So, Sunfire's logic for not helping is that he really just doesn't like people. Mm. <laughs> which I'm sure can get behind that reason. Specifically, he doesn't like Westerners. Of course. Which, you know, that's faultless logic. The guy don't like us. Yeah. Alright, okay, fair enough. Bugger off. <laughs> we don't want you on the team. I don't like you people. Hmm, my name's Professor Xavier and I've got a brilliant idea. Yeah. I'm going to uh, put you on a team with people. Yeah, well, as well, it's a shame that he's been a stroppy gay. Only last two panels. Yeah. Before he comes crawling back. 
<laughs> oh dear. The Stratojet just disappears into the Earth after they've all got off it. Presumably, because this being a living island, Krakow just absorbs it into the ground, right? Yeah. That makes perfect sense to me. Okay, yeah. It just shows up completely unharmed later on. It burps it back out. Does he? Does he go burp on it like the Sarlacc pit? Yeah. yeah. Or maybe when it, it went up into the sky, it let out a huge fart. Yeah. That propelled That's it. That's what propelled it, propelled it out. Yeah. Krakoa fart. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yes, good. Highbrow entertainment tonight <laughs> on the show. Nightcrawler, especially maybe forgiven for wondering why you went with Professor X given that the X-Men are just as offensive to him <laughs> as the humans at home, aren't they? They're always just insulting the poor guy. Do they just insult each other, though? Constantly. It's like, they all hate people, so Professor X put them on the same team because <laughs> he didn't quite understand that they hate it. It's like the Bill Hicks sketch. The group <laughs> the people of people that hate, hate people. people. Society. Yeah. <laughs> That's the X-Men. We've never actually had a meeting. <laughs> Yeah, he has put together here not just a team of dysfunctional people, he's put together a team of people who can't stand people. Yeah. And then he sends them off to fight together. And if you read this issue, they don't fight as a team. No. It's dumb luck that they actually work as well together as they do. Mm. Because they split off into smaller groups, don't they? We get to the point where... I'm hoping you can help this, because I started getting really confused at this point. <laughs> I lost it. Did you? I was, right. I was sat on the couch next to Adam going, this is really bad, All I right. can't carry on. We learn that Krakow is a living island due to nuclear testing, okay? Right. All right, fair enough. Maybe it's near France, I don't know. Krakow was feeding off the X-Men's mutant energies, which is why he let Cyclops go to bring back more mutants. Okay, fine. But what's he been feeding off for the rest of the years? What's he been feeding off before the mutants got there? Plants? Um, fish. Plant life, fish life, alright, fair enough. And now he's got a taste of mutant. Or maybe it's in the Bermuda Triangle. Oh, well, alright, he's got a taste of mutant, and oh, this is good. I'm yeah. having some of this. And he, he thinks all humans are mutants. Yeah. So he wants Cyclops to bring back more. Alright, okay, okay, I can go with that, that makes sense. But he then manifests himself as this huge Godzilla-esque monster... Which yeah. is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the art is pretty damn good in that bit. It's better than them fighting the lobsters like they did in the other page. Yes, there is that. But the, that, that splash of Krakoa as manifest is, is very good, isn't it? Yeah. And it does give the X-Men something to hit, mm-hmm. which is always nice in a superhero comic. There is that. Let's have something to punch. But if the entire island is alive, then why give them this physical manifestation, which implies that this monster represents the island? Why not just eat the X-Men whole like it at the Stratojet? Why don't I just suck them just all in? Uh, because the X-Men needed something to punch. To punch. And they, they look I, a bit funny if they're just punching the ground. Well, Take I, that, tree. I could understand that if he was distracting them from something else. Alright, I will create a big monster for the X-Men to fight, while over here, I'm doing something else. But or he isn't, is he? He uses the monster to absorb their energies, the fighting him. That's a possibility, I suppose. Yeah. As they're fighting, he's draining them but that's not mentioned anywhere is it that's you reaching oh there's a lot not mentioned you kind of have to reach yeah alright okay fair enough but then it gets a little bit sillier does it really if that's possible Professor X contacts Cyclops mentally and says he's discovered the island's weak spot right remember that okay he's discovered the (laughs) island's weak spot okay Storm then flies up into the sky and summons a lightning storm Right? Oh, this right. is fine. This is what Storm does. Okay, we're okay so far. <laughs> then she electrocutes Lorna Dane 
and this apparently brings her powers back. Yeah. How does that work then, Ted? She she jump started her powers. She jump started her magnetic powers. Yeah. With lightning. Maybe she's like a, a living Tesla coil. Oh, but like a battery in a car, you can jump start a battery. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. All right, we're explaining it. Good, we're, we're explaining the end of this issue. All right, fair enough. Then Lorna uses her magnetic powers to sever the primary lines of magnetic force between the island and the Earth, and whoops, there goes gravity, and the island is hurled into space. Because gravity, for a long time now, has been well known to be based on magnetic powers. Though well, there's ley lines... It's, it's, yeah. See, we all have minuses in our feet, and at the centre of the Earth is a plus. And you're going with this as an explanation? It's better than this. Alright, okay. I'm just making things up on the spot here. Well, I did, I did wonder, was this remotely plausible on no. a scientific basis? Probably not. I mean, even for comic book science, this seems woolly. Yeah. But it may have some basis in reality. But, genuinely, lovely listeners, if you can make this make sense to me, I'd be very grateful. Because this implies that the island's weak spot, remember, the one weak spot that Professor X found... Is gravity. ...was to have its gravity severed so it could be chucked into space. Presumably that's everybody's weak spot. Yeah. If I cut your ties to the Earth and threw you into space, that's a pretty big weak spot, isn't it? Yeah. So, is this remotely scientifically plausible... And they just didn't do a very good job of explaining it, even comic book-wise. Hmm. Or is this just bunkum? I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's... <laughs> it's bunkum. bunkum. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alright, okay, fair enough if you're going with the bunkum explanation. <laughs> I don't really got much else. It was alright, it was okay. I've read this a number of times, and I've got to say, I've never been overly impressed with it, although... That could be the weight of expectation. Dave Cockrum's art is fine, especially in the Krakow sequences. But Len Wein's script is perfunctory, mm. is probably the best way I can describe it. The opening scenes read like a retelling of The Magnificent Seven, with Yul Brynner's Professor X rounding up his posse of cowboys for his dangerous mission. And then it just turns into a rehash of Fantastic Four number one, with a supposedly uninhabited island causing problems for the team before it's eventually blown up real good. Nightcrawler and Colossus come across the best of the newbies, with most of the others being obnoxious at best, Wolverine and Storm, I'm looking at you, or just generally unlikable at worst, step forward Sunfire and Thunderbird. As with most comics of this era, there is very little subtlety in the script. The first couple of pages pretty much spell out slowly for people who are hard of thinking what the X-Men are all about. The dialogue is likewise functional, but nothing special. Where it does work is in setting up an entirely new cast of X-Men that are culturally diverse. Storm is African, Nightcrawler German, Colossus is Russian, Thunderbird's an Apache, Sunfire is Asian, Banshee is Irish, and Wolverine's a Canadian. They're all introduced very effectively, albeit extremely briefly. Adding diversity to the cast is no bad thing, and this does it properly. It doesn't recast a character to capitalise on an existing name, rather it makes new characters with a view that they will be developed further in the future. As with most Bronze Age comics, whilst the action is fast and frenetic and Wayne deserves credit for slipping in as much characterisation as he does, even if it's all very broad strokes, the ending made very little sense. 
as we discussed, either the science just isn't properly explained or it's complete bollocks. But either way, it didn't make sense within the context of the story and it just left me scratching my head Mm. as to how this had happened. Wiener said that this was just another job and he felt no real affinity for the characters. And although I don't think this really has stood the test of time all that well as a comic in and of itself... It's certainly a landmark book for its ultimate influence on comics. Yeah. It's the beginning of the X-Men, really, isn't it? It was similar to the issue of Avengers with Captain America. Avengers number four. Yeah, it was important, but it was kind of... In and of itself, it wasn't a very good comic. No. But ultimately, it has become bigger than what it originally was because, by what it represents. Because everyone forgot the story surrounding it. Everyone forgot that Giant Size X-Men 1 wasn't very good. <laughs> yeah. But because it's the first appearance of the new X-Men, it's worth a, a shared ton of money. Yeah. Even though it's not a particularly great comic. It's, it's not. No. So is that your, your final answer? It is, yeah. On Giant Size X-Men 1? It was not a fan. Well, you know. No. no. Okay. Another landmark in the history of comics, and one I suppose you could point to as the real beginning of the Bronze Age, is March 6th, 1970, the day Jack King Kirby left Marvel Comics. After years of feeling like he was second fiddle to Stan Lee and not receiving his dues, the King quit the company that had made his name and accepted an offer to work for DC. 70s Kirby is not 60s Kirby by any stretch of the imagination. He developed considerably during his 102 issues on the Fantastic Four, to the point where his work bore little resemblance to the early days of that strip, and this, coupled with the promise from DC that he would be allowed to script his own plots, must have seemed too good to be true. Kirby threw himself into his DC work, where his contract called for 15 pages a week, a number few people can manage today. Initially taking over secondary Superman title Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, he almost immediately fell afoul of editorial interference when almost all of his Superman faces were redrawn to match the house style. Nevertheless, Kirby brought Olsen, previously the domain of Bobby Socks and Milkshakes, kicking and screaming into the 1970s without the concepts like the Newsboy Legion and Cadmus, and then launched his own line of titles, kicking off with The Forever People, and swiftly followed up with The New Gods and Mr. Miracle. Kirby's storylines crossed over into other titles in the line, making it one of the first cross-title multi-issue crossovers written by the same creator, even though it was not marketed as this initially. In addition, Kirby produced OMAC, a short-lived but again influential sci-fi series, The Demon, and Commandy, The Last Boy Alive, a post-apocalyptic story of a ravaged Earth. These latter books were not part of what would come to be known as Jack Kirby's Fourth World. At the time of publication, reactions were decidedly mixed, and the books were all cancelled due to low sales before Kirby could give the characters the send-off he really desired. However, over the years this work has been reappraised as being considerably groundbreaking for the time it was created, and ultimately proved hugely influential on the DC Universe as a whole in later years. The Superman comics of the 1990s took liberal amounts of characters and situations created by Kirby and incorporated them into the overall Superman narrative, whilst the recent Final Crisis series also has its seeds in Kirby's work, as does the New 52 relaunch of the Justice League. Which is a retelling of New Gods, but... But not as good. Nowhere near as good. Nowhere near as good. 
New Gods issue 7, cover dated March 1972, has a cover by Jack Kirby and Mike Royer. It's quite a strange cover, in my opinion, even for Kirby's more abstract 70s work. A man clad in red armour, clasping a large staff in his hand, steals himself as a yellow creature riding a big dog and wearing a rather implausible hat swings at him as bodies lie all around. It's 70s Kirby in all of its glory, but whether you think it's good or not will entirely depend on whether you like 70s Kirby. Personally, I think it's pretty damn good. I really like it. Very impressive, isn't it? We will find out in the story who these two people are. He's Steppenwolf, the guy with the implausible hat. Yes. And that is Isaiah, isn't it? Yeah. In a mask, but you don't know that until later. And those are just dead bodies of background characters. And those are just random red shirts. Yeah. What would imagine? The Pact was written, edited and pencilled by Jack Kirby and inked by Mike Royer. In the credit where credit is due department, this is one of the few times I have nicked a synopsis. Oh. I know, it's shocking. The majority of the following came from comicvine.com, although I did rewrite it to insert some important information. Normally, we do do our own synopsises. We do. Don't we, as Why a rule? Why change your mind? Well, we originally envisioned Rockworld as a two-parter, didn't we? And I thought I had more time. And then when Rockworld ended up being one part, I've kind of scrabbled to get these notes done. So I've stole the synopsis. Could have synopsised it culpa. I nicked it. Sorry, I do apologise. I'm disappointed in you. Well, I don't see you doing it. I would have done it. But... Should, I, should we do the Comic Vine synopsis and see if you prefer this to the ones I normally do? Go on, then. I did the X-Men one. <laughs> okay, you did, you did the, the longest one of them. Yeah. yeah. On the idyllic fields of New Genesis, back in the beginning, Isaiah and his wife, Avia, share a tender moment. Suddenly, Steppenwolf of Apocalypse and his demon raiders, which sound like a band, attack, and in an attempt to save her husband's life, Avia is slain. Darkseid arrives, as if by magic, and he seemingly slays Isaiah. Isaiah has, however, survived, and enraged by the death of his wife, he initiates a war between New Genesis and Apocalypse, a conflict that will come to be known as the Great Clash. Which also sounds like a band. New Genesis lays waste to Apocalypse, but the royal family, secreted in an underground bunker, confers with the war cabinet. The ruler of Apocalypse, Queen Hegra, is asked by Darkseid to demonstrate the mysterious X element, but when Metron just appears, again as if by magic, the duo, Darkseid and Metron, strike a bargain. In exchange for the X element, Metron will give Apocalypse Matter Threshold technology, a precursor to the boom tube. Using the Matter Threshold, Apocalypse forces begin teleporting into New Genesis, striking at multiple strategic points. With Steppenwolf leading the charge, the forces of New Genesis begin to falter. The military ranks of New Genesis part, giving Steppenwolf easy access to the leader of New Genesis, Isaiah. The two old enemies meet again on the field of battle. This time it is Steppenwolf who falls, and there is no mistaking his death. Still, the war escalates. Greater and greater god machines are crafted to rain destruction down upon the two warring planets. Whole suns are converted into power sources for cannons that belch Armageddon. Isaiah sees the utter destruction of the universe itself if the war is not stopped. Isaiah wanders the ruined wastelands of New Genesis in search of another way. He renounces war. Before him appears the Source Wall, and Isaiah knows what must be done. A secret bargain is struck between Isaiah and Darkseid, Apocalypse's new ruler in the wake of Hegra's death. Isaiah's firstborn son is sent to Apocalypse to be raised by Darkseid. 
The infant is left in the care of Granny Goodness, who names the boy Scott Free. Taken to the orphanage, Free is guaranteed a life of cruelty, one from which he will one day escape, thus breaking the pact with New Genesis. Until that day, Darkseid will have time to redefine his power base without the constant distraction of an endless war. Holding up his end, despite the protests of his wife, Tigra, Darkseid sends his own firstborn son to New Genesis to be raised by Isaiah. The boy has only ever known hate in his young life. His first instinct is to lash out at Isaiah, but the calm, peaceful strength of the High Father gives the boy pause. An uneasy trust is forged. The boy, Orion, allows Isaiah to lead him on a new path. I actually think our, our synopsis is better than that. Yeah, to be brutally you frank. You don't trip over yours as much. I don't, because I've written them, so I know what I'm doing. The opening pages, which are glorious, show Steppenwolf and his demon raiders attack brutally and suddenly, killing Avia and seemingly killing Isaiah. Steppenwolf points out that he distrusts Darkseid and that this foray and attack was his idea. The implication to me hmm. was that Darkseid is manipulating all of these events, and I want to see more of that. Yeah, I did say when we covered Transformers that the political machinations of the Decepticons was by far the most interesting part of the story and it's exactly the same in this I love that Kirby didn't feel the need to hang a lantern on this well he's been treacherous and deceiving all, all over yeah it's heavily implied that during the confrontation in the middle the one that forms the cover image that yeah. we talked about earlier on Darkseid should have been in the fight but relinquished his place to Steppenwolf Mm. because he knew that Isaiah was still alive, and knowing that, Steppenwolf would be killed in Isaiah's quest for vengeance for his missus. Well, I got the death glove he used to kill him. He knew that wouldn't kill him. Oh, yeah, this was all set up by Darkseid. Darkseid knew. And he even... He, he plays a bluff, doesn't he? He yeah. bluffs Steppenwolf. He actually says to him, do you want to check the body? Mm. And Steppenwolf goes, no, 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 I know that he's dead. So Steppen, Steppenwolf falls for Darkseid's bluff. If he checked the body, none of this would have happened. Mm-hmm. So Darkseid's either supremely confident in himself... Well, he is. Or he would have just killed him if he'd found out the truth. Mm. It's possible, isn't it? Uh, Kirby has received a number of criticisms for his dialogue. Hell, even in the introduction to this volume, it mentions the clunky dialogue and that you may have trouble getting past it. It's serviceable dialogue rather than clever... I didn't find it any worse than contemporaneous dialogue of comics of this era. Mm. And I actually prefer it to some writers' desire to mimic real-life dialogue. You know, complete with repetition and uh, uh, and all of that. I I find this much more interesting than that. I really like this dialogue. It's like the really big, super-powered gods. Why wouldn't they talk like that? Yeah, it's... I didn't think it was as melodramatic or as over-the-top as Giant Size X-Men. No, and even I, if it did, it works. Yeah, it's the only time I felt like you were having one of those giant size X Men conversations where, like, you pointed out they were just yelling at each other all the time. Yeah. Was where they were supposed to be yelling at each other. Yeah. During the scene between Darkseid and Metron where he wants the X element. Mm. They were supposed to be yelling at each other then. I mean, there's, there's rather a copious usage of uh, the exclamation mark. <laughs> but, you know, other than that, I, I thought this was, was rollicking. Mm. Oh, this was a rollicking good read for the most the, part. The battle sequences were great as well. Yeah. yeah Especially to get bigger and bigger and massive spaceships crashing into suns. It was awesome. Yeah. Well, it's one of them... In every conceivable way, comics are better nowadays. Right. They're better written, they're better drawn, there's better colouring process. Yeah. But Kirby was incapable of drawing a boring panel. 
mm. wasn't he? Even that Panalora guy's just taking his hat off. Yeah. It's riveting to look at. And you look at a lot of comics now, and there's a lot of boring panels. It's the story that's carrying it, the dialogue. Yeah. The panel work is actually quite dull. Kirby's, none of his panels are dull mm. in any way whatsoever in this comic. And you can argue that it's stylized, and you can argue that all these people have square fingers. And to that, I just say, so what? Yeah, I think it, it works with the story. Yeah, he's, uh, he's stylized. It's a big, bold... Yeah, you know, you not if you don't like it, that's fine. I think this, I thought this was glorious. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It, it, when he came back to it from... What was the last one called? Think the Hunger Gods. Yeah, that, he's out there, isn't... 80s Kirby is nowhere near as good well, as that, 70s Kirby. That was after it had been cancelled. Yeah. So, yeah. There is, there is something to be said that, alright, yeah, I'll give you that his 80s work isn't as good. Hmm. Uh, his 70s work is magnificent. And you can see his growth. One of the things about doing fantastic cast is I've learned to appreciate him from his rather simplistic beginnings to just being magnificent. And it, it do, you do just wonder what would have happened if he'd just been left on Fantastic Four and Stan had left. Yeah. Um, you know, what could have been. Uh, we get the f- I presume this is the first appearance of the Source Wall. Well, this is not the first appearance. Well, this is the origin story. Because this is the prequel, isn't it? Yeah. And I presume that plays into other stories as well. I know Metron, Orion and Scott Free all do. Oh, the Source Wall's already been in it, actually. Has it? Yeah, because they use it to send messages to each other. Right, okay, see, I didn't I didn't know any of that. One of the things I do want to mention is the, these Fourth World volumes are gorgeous. Yeah. These trade paperbacks are absolutely lovely. Exactly the kind of trades the company should be publishing. We have slagged DC off before for poor quality trades with no back matter or supplementary material or whatever. So it's only fair to give them credit when they get it right. The oh, paper in these... The thing is. Go on these were released before the new 52 so that's why they were better you think yes and the paper in these is gorgeous Mm. it's really crisp and lovely and white but it's not that crappy glossy stuff that's hard to read if you've got a light on the gutters are not so tight that you can't see what's going on and the dialogue and the supplementary material in these is magnificent there are intros and afterwards and original pencils and covers and uh, the character designs in the first volume yeah the character designs in the first volume and more like this please DC and we wouldn't be having a problem yeah this is absolutely glorious I've never read any of Kirby's fourth world despite having all four of these lovely little trade paperbacks and it's not because I don't want to it's just because I, I want to devote the time to do it properly and that time just hasn't materialised yet. But we picked an issue that would complement the X-Men, and there really was no competition. It had to be an issue from Kirby's DC work, and New Gods just seemed like the most logical choice. I did a little bit of research, and I noticed that Kirby himself had picked this as his favourite issue. It was also a prequel to the main series, setting up the Great Clash and Darkseid as a manipulative individual who craves power. So... Firstly, this is epic in scope, magnificently rendered, and incredibly fast-paced, wasn't it? Mm. Incredibly fast-paced. In fact, all of that could also be considered minus points, as well as plus points. It, it's a little bit too fast-paced in places, covering an epic war in but a few short pages, doesn't it? This is a galaxy-spanning conflict, that is is over. And major character beats are covered in less time. 
Avia's death is brutal and quick, as it should be, but Isaiah rushing into war is just as quick. It's heavily implied Darkseid manipulated this entire situation, seemingly killing Isaiah, and it's equally implied Steppenwolf knows this and is destructful of Darkseid. Distrustful, sorry, but none of this political intrigue is really played out to its full extent, is it? Steppenwolf's killed off. Yeah. Well, it's... They've already established all the characters. How I read it anyway is I didn't have the problem with it being that fast. Yeah. Oh, because no, I, 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 I didn't have a problem with it being fast-paced. I just felt it could have done with a little bit of breathing room. Well, the thing, the thing with it is it's... All your characters have already been established, so you know everyone, but this is the backstory, so it's only touching on them. The war's not important. You just need to know that it's there. Right, so basically this is the prequels. Yeah. To the original Star Wars trilogy. Yeah. And halfway through he's got around to telling the prequels. I did think it was pretty cool how he turned out to be the High Father. Yeah. Isaiah. Yeah. Turns out to be High Father. See, I didn't know any of that. And there are lots of new ideas in it. The X-Element and Metron playing for both teams and the invention of the Matter Threshold device. And it's all just tossed off. Well, we knew about Metron anyway. Yeah, yeah. All the character being developed before. Yeah, we knew about all of that. The sheer imagination Mm. and the ideas that are falling off the page are staggering. But I knew, I just felt a little bit more room to develop it. But like you said, I've only read this one issue. Yeah. So when when I finally get around to reading the whole, it may be a different story. Um, It was an astonishingly good read, but bloody hell, I was exhausted after reading it. I thought it was great. It was. Oh, I'm not disputing that. I do prefer that to being bored. Yeah. And not bothering, not being bothered to finish the story. Giant Size X-Men got to a point where it was a bit of a slog. Yeah. I never felt that with this. Well, when I was reading this for the show, because I wasn't up to here with what I've read when you read the first trade, and I'm going through, oh, that's great, I want to read more, turn the page, oh, it's a Viking, the black story, never mind. Do you not like him? Oh, no. I didn't know who he was. I've no idea who he is. It's only a little two-pager at the back. It's not really that important. I mean, ultimately, whatever you think of Kirby, whether you like his art or not, there is no denying that in this issue, and just flicking through this entire trade paperback, it's very distinctive, it's very unique, and it's incredibly powerful stuff, Mm. in my opinion. Asking if Fourth World is influential is like asking if kids like cake. Despite being dismissed upon its original release, the concepts and themes of this series, war and its effects on civilization, the rise of the conscientious objector, and its epic galaxy-spanning story has influenced DC Comics immeasurably, from the Great Darkness War to Final Crisis through to New 52. DC would be a completely different place if Kirby had been allowed to end his saga as he had planned, as some great and memorable characters would have now been off the table. Does it hold up? Kind of. I'd argue that it does. There's no way you'd consider this a contemporary comic. No, but it's... It holds up against what's out today. It's vibrant and exciting in a way a lot of modern comics aren't. And it's like, if you put this up on a shelf next to a modern comic and like, tell a child to pick one he'd rather read... Oh, yeah. You need to go for this. I, I, a sensible and intelligent child yes. would no doubt go for this. Because it just looks fantastic. I'm not a big fan of Kirby, but I really like the fourth world stuff. No, that's fair enough. It's, I think you can be not a big fan of Kirby and just love the work that he put into this. It, it, it is. It's a huge 
epic crossover, but it's not a crossover, but it is at the but same time. But it is at the same time. And it's, it is comics as art. And the Jimmy Olsen stuff that kick it off. Yeah. It's way out of the... Is it? You can be on the, the biggest trip of your life and you're still looking over it over the hill. I know, well, it's one of them... This made me much more interested to read more Fourth World mm. than Giant Size X-Men made me want to read more X-Men. Yeah. It's only though it's only because I know X Men gets better mm. that was like oh yeah okay but this this was just glorious I need time to read all four of these the first trade at least is great is that as far as you've got yeah especially the the Mister Miracle stuff where he's trapped in an apartment block like an entire building and everyone is possessed by Dark Side and they're all attacking him so he has to get out without harming anyone so yeah I'm I'm very interested in. In reading all four of them now, because that that was absolutely blinded mm. in many ways. I mean, even with the the criticisms and caveats that I had, it was still it was still page turning, yeah, and it was still glorious. And I still went back and just looked at panels of it and thought, that's fantastic. Mm. I like the big double page spread one of the war going on. It was all great. Mm-hmm. There was nothing wrong with it. Yeah, you can not like Kirby's art, but I don't think you can deny how powerful it is. Yeah. Finally, tonight, just very briefly, every week, in addition to covering two epoch-making comics, we'll probably briefly cover another one. I mean, Do we switch between Marvel and DC? Um, the backups? At the moment, we're, we're, we're more weighted in favour of Marvel, simply because I've got more Marvel 70s comics. Yeah. And I've got these three great, in the Marvel first the 70s trades, which DC haven't done an equivalent of. And i got these for about a fiver each. Yeah. I got one of them in Florida for five dollars. Mm-hmm. So we're more weighted in favour of Marvel than DC, which isn't fair, but it's just the way it's turned out. Fair enough. Uh, one of the things that set the seventies apart was its desire to capitalise on fads, something that we will talk a bit about in this series. Firstly, the martial arts craze of the nineteen seventies led to a number of people trying to emulate Bruce Lee, noted star of Enter the Dragon fame and this led to a number of martial arts inspired comics including Iron Fist and Shang-Chi The Deadly Hands of Kung Fu was a black and white magazine that made its debut in February of 1974 with an absolutely gorgeous cover by Neil Adams In what looks like a James Bond's villain's lure, a man who bears no resemblance whatsoever to the aforementioned Bruce Lee Oh no sorry Bob uh, purely for the lawyers, he doesn't. <laughs> Leaps forward wearing only karate gi or gi trousers. Is that the proper name for a karate outfit? No idea. They're either gi or gi. Uh, nothing else. Kicks a more muscular man who likewise was very little in the face, causing him to crumple to the ground. In the background, bodies are littered everywhere. It is stunning. Apparently Marvel made a poster of that. Yeah. That's how good it was. The lack of clothing that I took the piss out of actually allows us to see the sheer magnificence that is Adam's anatomy, and it's just beautiful. Completely different from Kirby. Yeah. Very much more hyper-realistic instead of hyper-stylized, but both just gorgeous pieces of artwork. That's a brilliant cover, isn't it? Mm. Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, number one. The Sons of the Tiger was written by Jerry Conway with art by Dick Giordano, doing his best Adams impersonation. 
Lin Sun walks home one night after winning his recent tournament. As he enters Chinatown in San Francisco, he's attacked by ninjas but fights them off. Entering his dojo home, he sees his master Ki on the floor, a victim of an attack. With his dying breath, Ki tells Lin of the Sons of the Dragon, when three men stand as one. He says, in all his years, only two others were Lin's equal. Abe Brown, a ghetto kid, and Robert Diamond, a successful actor. As he dies, Ki says that with the Sons, Lin will find his destiny, and he passes Lin an amulet of three parts, a tiger's head and two paws. Lin tracks down Abe, who is just seeing off some muggers from his neighbourhood, and Robert at a swanky party, who is also attacked by ninjas. With Abe and Lin's assistance, Robert sees off the bounders, and Lin tells them all three attacks and the death of Key are linked to an ancient conspiracy, and the three men leave to earn vengeance for Key's death. The trail leads to Su Ti Karma, the only trainer of ninja in San Francisco, and the three men each take a part of the amulet and find their strength and skill increased threefold. With this advantage, they take out Su Ti after discovering he is also an opium den. Robert and Abe are quick to celebrate victory, but Lin points out that somebody was supplying the opium and was the mastermind behind the whole scheme. Lin will not rest until he is brought to justice. What do you think of this one, Michael? I shouldn't have enjoyed it as much as I did. It's, <laughs> it, it's so... It's not bad, but it's not good, but it's really good, but it's really bad. <laughs> it's chop socky. It's at its absolute finest. I will... Kung Fu... The Kung Fu fad is uniquely 70s, but interest in martial arts has just carried on through the ages, hasn't it? It's carried on through the 80s, through the 90s. The, That's the Karate Kid. The Raid movies. Yeah, the Raid movies. So, it still feels quite timely. Yeah. Whilst simultaneously being very much a product of its time. Oh, yeah. Comics don't really date as much as, as movies and films mm. of the 70s have just by their nature. But this looks like it's stepped off of the screen of an old smoke-filled cinema yeah. in the 70s, doesn't it? This, this looks like it's a real time capsule. You could definitely hear the music in the background, yeah, especially you, with a black guy in it, because, yeah, you know... You can hear the shaft It's music. definitely stereotyped, this issue. Yeah, but... You know, so... He was from the ghetto. Of course he was! And he's an actor who has learned the path of righteousness. Yeah. He's a keen study, and together they were murder. Yeah, it's Giordano's arts, obviously channeling Neil Adams. Um, I'd say it's, it's it's just as good as Adams, if not better. Yeah, well, he, he's dinked a lot of Batman work over Neil Adams hasn't he so he probably studied at his feet I thought the art was great in this yeah well especially when there are some points where the grey tones of it yeah because it was a black and white magazine there are some times where you could say oh he's not penciled that he's just gone over with a felt tip looks alright though when they're climbing up one of the buildings you can see the buildings in the background he's not as you get further away he's just drawn over them with a grey pen right no he has done some neat tricks with it just being the black and white art and it's the art is both magnificent and dated at the same time, which is pretty much how we're going to describe this entire issue, isn't it? Yeah. It's magnificent and dated at the same time, but it still holds up, yeah. despite being dated. And it's one of those weird dichotomies that 
and you just got to wrap your head around, basically. He manages to capture the feel of the 70s without the inherent chintziness of the era. And he's made a comic here that reads like the French Connection or Dirty Harry. Mm. Yes, it's of the 70s, but you can still watch it today and thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah. It's now a period piece, undeniably, but it, it works as entertainment, doesn't it? I read this and thought it was fantastic. I read this and I wasn't, it wasn't going to be in the show. Yeah. I just happened to have this trade paperback out because I was reading Giant Size X-Men for the show. And the artwork caught my eye because mm. it's black and white and gorgeous. And I did honestly think at first it was Neil Adams Yeah. when I was just flicking through it. Conway's script is tight, if a little cramped in places. Yeah. There are numerous panels where the word balloons are many and seem to cover up too much of the artwork. It's like like you said with Giant Size X-Men number one, they've crammed a lot into the one issue mm. where maybe they could have let it breathe a little bit. But they said really cool panel layouts that... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the action's kinetic and very well choreographed and it flows from panel to panel properly. And this was just a great surprise. Yeah, I was sat there in it, they were going, this is so bad, they got, oh, of course, yeah, he raised them as a son and all, the, all of these stereotypes, but ooh, that's a really cool fight scene. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. It's really... It, it's obvious and there's nothing in it that is a surprise hmm. but having read it just purely by accident when I was flicking through it and I caught the artwork it was a pleasant surprise I was kind of let down that they didn't have an argument over who would have the head of the tiger <laughs> they're all better than that <laughs> the fact that it was black and white just added to it yeah, I think yeah. it was the fact that it was black and white that drew my eye to it when I just happened to be flicking through there's another black and white story in this volume isn't there there's a few, I think. Yeah, there's another black and white story later on. Is it um, The Haunt of Horror? Yeah. Gabrielle Devil Hunter. And fair play to Marvel, Tigra also has a black and white strip. The black and white stuff looks better. Yeah, and fair play to Marvel t- for not colouring it. Yeah. I, I would have read that issue of Tigra because it looks good. Yeah. The art in that is by Tony Dizanuga. So, yeah, the black and white stuff just adds to it. It was glorious. Mm. It was absolutely fantastic. Such a really pleasant surprise that this brilliant story should be buried in the middle of this, this trade paperback. Marvel have tried many times to bring back the chop socky strips, but revivals of Iron Fist and Chang Chi, Shang Chi, just they don't seem to gel with modern audiences, do they? They keep trying to bring them back. Yeah. Um, and it just never really works, does it? Brubaker did a decent job, didn't they? Iron Fist? Yeah. I've never read it. Is it good? I've heard it's good, never read it. Right, okay, maybe we'll have to pick, because it's now available as a big fat trade, that, isn't it? Yeah. All the Brubacker and... Did you do it with Matt Fraction? Yeah. Did they work together? They did a big omnibus of it. Right, so that, that may be worth checking out. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed it. And it's one of those weird ones where the one that you thought was going to be good wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And the other two that you didn't maybe have high hopes for Well, going into were brilliant. it, I haven't read any of it yet, and you said, oh, we're covering uh, Giant Size X-Men isn't very good <laughs> uh, we're covering uh, Dead of the Hands of Kung Fu that's great <laughs> you didn't believe me well you so didn't believe me that that was brilliant yeah <laughs> and after reading uh, X-Men I was like how, how can this get any worse well uh, we started low we yeah. started with what we thought was going to be the best one and ended up not being, but it meant that the show could only get better. Oh, going into it, I thought New Gods was going to be the best one. Did you? Yeah. So yeah, I, I wasn't sure about New Gods. I bought all four of them because I wanted to read it, mm. but it made me want to read more of them. 
And if, if that 70s comics, we're not batting badly there. No. Two out of three ain't bad, mm-hmm. as Meatloaf once had it. Right, okay, well that's it for this week. Next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics, we continue our celebration of all things 70s by looking at Howard the Duck issue 16, Weird Western Tales issue 17, and Amazing Spider-Man issue 129. Now I know what you're thinking, and you're right, you said we'll be doing superheroes, but man, (laughs) Punisher. We cannot do the 70s and not look at the Punisher. Okay. It's It's just not the done thing, quite frankly. Anyway, we hope you'll enjoy. You we'll hope you enjoy us. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed that, and we will be back next week with those three comics. Unless I change my mind and swap one of them out <laughs> for something else. See you next week. Bye bye. Goodbye. <laughs> Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.
rendition though. Acapella. We really should charge for this, shouldn't we? Acapella renditions of Game of Thrones. The Game of Thrones fans would pay for it, I have no doubt. It's getting to the point of Game of Thrones, you slap it on anything and people will buy it, so can't imagine that people wouldn't want to listen to me do an acapella Game of Thrones. I think that would make us a shed ton of money that we could plough back into the show. That's what I think. What do you think? I am talking to myself again, yes. Nobody else will listen to me. No one else was here to listen. There is that also, but since when has that stopped me? Talking to yourself is the first time of being a serial killer. Oops. There is a reason I don't let you in the basement. (laughs) 